0: We have followed Paul on his third missionary journey. He has traveled in many cities throughout Asia Minor, but he had declared during that ministry that his intention was to be in Jerusalem by the Passover. And having declared those intentions several times, people came to him saying that the Holy Spirit told them that trouble awaited him in Jerusalem. And some of them even tried to discourage him from going to the holy city for fear that something dreadful would befall him. Paul nevertheless stuck to his plans. He did eventually arrive in Jerusalem. He arrived at the time of Passover, and he was indeed struck with various forms of trouble. Ultimately, in the temple, he was the the subject of a riot, and people were coming attempting to beat him to death. Now, next to the temple was the Roman fortress Antonia, uh, from which the commander could oversee what was happening in the temple, and he sent soldiers down to, to bring Paul out of the crowd to find out what was happening, and at least at that point, to spare his life. He had Paul beaten, he had him bound, and then Paul announced that he was a Roman citizen, And that put fear into the soldiers because Roman citizens, it was illegal for a Roman citizen to be bound and to be beaten without some charge being proved. Paul requested the ability to speak to the crowd, and he had Paul speak to the crowd from the steps of the fortress, a safe location. And things seemed to be going well until ultimately the crowd rejected his Christian message. And so again, he was taken into the fortress and then the commander decided that if he was going to decide what the issue was with Paul, why was it that these Jewish people were so angry at this man Paul? He, he wasn't able to, to interrogate it out of him. He wasn't able to really receive any single message from the crowd. So he decided that perhaps the best thing to do would be to send him on to another Jewish setting. And that's what we're going to find tonight as Paul appears before the Sanhedrin. So we read the next day because he, that is the commander, wanted to know for certain why he, that is Paul, was accused by the Jews. He released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. So Claudius Lysias, this commander, realizes that The only chance he has of really finding out what it is about Paul that so angers the Jews is to take him to a Jewish setting which would not immediately turn into a riot. And so he commanded the chief priest and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. Now this council was the Sanhedrin. It was like the religious supreme court in Jerusalem with a high priest as the presiding officer. And this high priest, Ananias, was someone who was always eager to curry favor with Roman authorities. And so he readily complied with this request. He gathered the Sanhedrin, this religious council, and Paul was set before them. Then moving into chapter 23, we read, Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Now, this verb translated, looked earnestly, has been used twice before in Acts, and each time it's used of an apostle who looks intently upon one whom he is about to heal. And Paul is taking this matter seriously. He is looking intently upon those members of the council, perhaps in some way trying to gauge their spiritual tone, gauge something of what they are like. In his address, men and brethren, he is being courteous. And he makes a very simple statement. I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Literally, that is, he lived as a good citizen before God. And he's saying that he has acted as a good citizen in the sight of God, the ruler and lawgiver of the Jewish nation, the God whom the Sanhedrin worships, the God whom the Sanhedrin recognizes. Now, remember that Paul is a Roman citizen, which gave him many privileges. But what we see here is what we've seen in other places, and that is he's more concerned about his heavenly citizenship. He's more concerned with pleasing his heavenly king than he is in pleasing the Roman emperor. And by saying he's lived in all good conscience before God, he's not saying that he's lived sinlessly. He's not saying that he's lived a perfect life but he has been blameless of breaking any law or temple ritual that would justify the riot that rose up against him. And so he makes this very simple statement in a certain sense. It's a statement of his innocence in light of what has taken place. And the response he receives is surely not what he would have expected. Verse 2, And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. So after hearing his opening statement, the high priest orders those near Paul to punch him in the mouth. Now, why he did this is not exactly clear. One commentator refers to it as a somewhat bizarre interruption. Perhaps Ananias is unwilling even to consider that Paul's Christian mission could be faithful to the God of Israel. His action does seem to be in accord with what we know of his character. The Jewish historian Josephus criticized Ananias as dishonoring his office through greed and violence. So perhaps violence is just the way he does things. But it's certainly not pleasing to Paul as it wouldn't be pleasing to you or me to get punched in the mouth. So verse 3, Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law. And do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? Now the apostle is vehement. He's forthright in his response, addressing Ananias as, you whitewashed wall. And here he's drawing on some imagery from Ezekiel of a wall that is ready to fall, even though its outward appearance, its plastering, or its whitewashing hides the decay behind it. And I can understand this because I've watched a lot of those shows on HGTV. You ever watch those shows on HGTV, you know, where they they buy a house and they have a budget and the person says, well, for this amount I can do this work. And almost inevitably, partway in, they said, well, I've got some bad news for you. You know, we took out a part of this wall and we found out all this plumbing needs to be replaced or none of that electricity is up to code. And those walls looked good, but behind them were things that were actually dangerous. Well, He's kind of saying that, that about Ananias. He's saying that he's a whitewashed wall. Yes, he looks good on the outside, but inside he has spiritual decay. And then he says, because you, he's basically saying, because you struck me contrary to the law, God is going to strike you. And he, in all of this, he's employing the language of, of covenant curse on disobedience from Deuteronomy 28 that tells various ways in which God would strike those who are disobedient to the law. And Paul is appalled that this legal assembly would act contrary to the law. Verse 4, and those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? So Paul's harsh words are challenged because of the one to whom they are directed. How dare he speak to God's high priest in this way? Verse 5, then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So Paul responds with grace and humility. He says, I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest. Now various explanations have been put forth to explain why it was that Paul didn't recognize Ananias as the high priest. Perhaps this quick gathering was rather informal and Ananias wasn't wearing his high priestly robes. Maybe that's why he didn't know who he was. Maybe there were many people speaking, and Paul didn't know specifically who it was that commanded him to be struck. John Stott suggests that it may be Paul's poor eyesight that had been a factor that we know from other parts in Scripture. Whatever the case may be, Paul was committed to honoring God-given office. And showing submission of his own to God's law, he quotes Exodus 22, 28, which says, "...you shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of his of your people and in his epistles we know that Paul urges believers to honor the elders in the congregation he urges believers to honor the magistrates that rule over them in the civil realm and his humble response upon learning the high priest identity exemplifies his basic commitment to honoring those in offices of authority But Paul now shifts from that brief accusation back to a sense of his defense. Verse 6. But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. We reflected on previous occasions about some of the differences between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, both of whom sat as part of the Sanhedrin. Now, in light of Paul's knowledge of these two groups, he employs a divide-and-conquer strategy by identifying clearly with one of them. He says, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, and it's concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead that I am being judged. And after saying this, he gets what was probably exactly the result that he desired, verses 7 and 8. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. So the response to Paul's statement that he is a Pharisee was dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees over their doctrinal differences. And Paul says he's being judged because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And narrator Luke informs us that the Sadducees say there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. So the Sadducees, he said, there's no resurrection from the dead. And this reference to angel or spirit is probably the sense that in the intermediate state, after death and before the resurrection, there is a spiritual existence of the one who has passed on. Now, while Paul is being shrewd here, he is not dissembling. The resurrection has been a central point in his preaching. For example, listen to Paul in Pisidian Antioch as recorded in Acts 13, 28 through 34. And Paul is in the middle of preaching here, and he's preaching about Jesus. And though they found no cause for death in him, that is in Jesus, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, and that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. So the resurrection of Christ was one of the central themes in Paul's preaching there in Antioch. Listen also to a portion of Paul's address on Mars Hill from Acts 17. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So notice that on Mars Hill, it is particularly his preaching the resurrection of the dead that led some to mock him, but others to desire to learn more. Because of the emphasis upon Jesus' resurrection in his preaching, Paul was speaking the truth when he declared concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. But then we go on in verse 9, then there arose a loud outcry. And the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. So once again, Paul is the cause of a loud outcry. His claim to believe in the resurrection of the dead showed that in that regard, he was still a good Pharisee. And that was enough to bring the Pharisees on the Sanhedrin to his side in the debate. Considering the charges against Paul to be charges against their own beliefs, they say, We find no evil in this man. But if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. And that reference to a spirit or an angel speaking to him is likely in reference to his testimony of having, writ- having met the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. And while the Pharisees don't say they believe that particular testimony, neither are they ready too quickly to dismiss something that that supports their doctrinal belief in the resurrection. And so their conclusion is, let us not fight against God. Well, it continues, verse 10, Now when there arose a great dissension, the commander Fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. If that commander, Claudius Lysias, thought that the Sanhedrin would settle this matter of Paul among the Jews, he was sorely disappointed. Once again, he fears that the apostle may be torn limb from limb And so he commanded his soldiers to go down, again down from the fortress, to take Paul by force away from those who had him and to bring him safely back into the barracks. He had to assure the safety of this Roman citizen under his care. And so Paul found himself back in the fortress Antonia. Then we read in verse 11, But the following night the Lord, that is Jesus, stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul. For as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. As we said, Paul had long desired to go to Rome. He was in Ephesus in Acts 19.21 when we read, When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. So far, Paul has followed that itinerary. He's gotten all the way up to Jerusalem. He's testified of the gospel there. And Jesus now appears to him, not in that blazing glory that blinded him on the Damascus Road, but in some kind of vision, appeared to him to assure him that his wish to go to Rome would be fulfilled. He says, be of good cheer, Paul, for you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Now, if the circumstances that will take him to Rome are not what Paul had envisioned, as we will see in coming chapters, nevertheless, he has the assurance of his Savior that he will reach that ministry goal. In fact, he must, we're told, do so according to the Lord's sovereign will. And I thought I'd conclude uh, this message with John Stott's comments on verse 11 here, because I think they do a good job of setting this in the larger context what's going on in Paul and his ministry. Stott writes, After the confrontation between Paul and Ananias and the heated argument between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, it is a relief to read that during the following night the Lord Jesus came and stood near Paul and spoke to him. The violence of the last two days and especially the enmity of the Jews must have made him wonder anxiously about the future there seemed little prospect of his leaving Jerusalem alive, let alone of his traveling on to Rome. So in this moment of discouragement, Jesus comforted him with a straightforward promise that as he had borne witness to him in Jerusalem, so he must also bear witness to him in Rome. It will be hard to exaggerate the calm courage with this assure- which this assurance must have brought to Paul during his three further trials, his two years imprisonment and his hazardous voyage to Rome. Now, it's about those things that we'll be reading in the chapters ahead. But one thing we see here that we see all throughout the book of Acts is the two sides. First of all, Paul's own determination to be faithful to his ministry of gospel proclamation in those places to which the Lord had called him, regardless of the cost. And he had resisted warnings against going to Jerusalem, and he was willing to endure whatever waited him there, so that he could declare the Lord to the Jews in Jerusalem. And he has done so in several venues on several occasions. And in the midst of he had not only been beaten by the Jews, he had been beaten with rods, arrested by the Romans. And yet he had done what he was called to do. And then alongside of that, we see God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty preserving his apostle through all these hard circumstances that he would accomplish exactly what God had desired for him to do and we can be sure that the lord will do the same for us as we are faithful faithful following him as we are serving him we can be sure that god will be with us and god will bring us into those places and empower us and guide us by his spirit so that we can be faithful to whatever his calling is upon our lives